Welcome, everybody, to the 2014, that's February 4th edition of Ask a Leader. Today, we're going to uh, bring in the experts, the local expert, that's Margaret Maradudin. She's the definitive authority on many, if not all, things Russian, and she's going to pull aside the curtain of the Sochi Winter Games. We hope that doesn't put her in any kind of apparel, because some people haven't been able to survive some of their uh, clear uh, talk to straight to power thinking. So you might like to get out paper and pen and I dare say an atlas and your laptop because you will want to jot down a few things. So don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. Thank you for joining us. This is Ask a Leader. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh. Welcome back with the Winter Olympic Games opening ceremony. Just about two days away, we hold our collective breath that it begins without a hitch and ends without non-athletic incident. My guest for the entire show today is expert on all things Russian, Margaret Mardudin. And I will be calling her Peggy, but I need to have her formal name out there for everybody to know. She received her B.A. at Stanford, her master's in Russian literature at USC, and studied at UCI. Did you get a... I got a master's at UCI in... Easter, uh, European history with an emphasis on Russia, yes. So everybody knows why I've invited <laughs> Peggy here. As increasingly the American media has been referring to the upcoming Winter Olympics as Putin's Games, and why is that so? I've asked Peggy Mardudin to be our guest today to talk about what to look for and to think about concerning the location of venues, the symbols, and the financing, and how Russian President Vladimir Putin is the controlling factor in all of these aspects. Welcome to the show, Peggy. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. It's kind of like the old real estate adage, location, location, location. location. The Sochi Games site was in large share offered to the International Olympic Committee due to Putin's own uh, bias, preference. He has a house, he has a dacha, dacha, dacha dacha there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the, the... Let's talk, though, about how fraught the geography is with historic significance and logistical concerns. Would you fill us in? I know there's many, and fill us in as many as you can in this moment what those significant developments are in the area, going back as far as you want to go. Well, Sochi is on the eastern coast uh, shore of the Black Sea, and so let's focus on that right now. It is... In many ways, an ideal location for something like the Winter Olympics, uh, as Putin pointed out in his English uh, presentation to the Olympic Committee in which, Guatemala. Which I want to say we won't have time today. No. Peggy has so much to cover, but this is an, an urgent uh, uh, suggestion mm-hmm. to all to, on the web, look up on YouTube, 
the Russian TV version of Vladimir mm. Putin's pitch to the Olympic, the International Olympic Committee in Guatemala in mm. 2007. That's all you have to do is right. Guatemala 2007, Putin, and you'll get the Russian TV version. That means you don't have that uh, simultaneous translation covering over. And you will hear an amazing pitch perfect delivered in English, closing in pitch perfect, perfect French. His uh, so, uh, proposal of the Sochi site. It's mm-hmm. a phenomenal piece of work, and you can understand mm-hmm. how the rest has been created in an image uh, of his own making. So back to since the begin since the two thousand seven. Well, yes, he then described Sochi, which is a has long been a summer and winter <laughs> sea resort to escape to from the Russian winter. And uh, sort of a f- flat strip of land, and then you go straight up into the mountains, up to altitudes, I think, around 16,000. So up there, that's the, poten- the ski resort. Uh, Putin has wanted to develop ski resorts in the Caucasus Mountains for ages, there are other areas, but none is ideal for an Olympic site as Sochi. For in that respect, I'd like for you to talk about all of we an uninitiated back to drawing on your mm-hmm. rich Russian history training. There are so many uh, significant connections to locations, and I, I I was struck by in your recent lectures. I was privy to hear, uh, for instance, the the the. The Circassians, Circassians, mm-hmm. who uh, yeah. were uh, themselves a, a target of, of a purge, um, massacres, and all that, and how they overlap with uh, sites now uh, and in general the region. Oh yes, the Circassians uh, fought or resisted Russian attempts to push them out of that region, and many bloody battles were fought. Uh, and finally, in 1864, they were forced out into a diaspora, mostly to Turkey, but as far south as Jordan and Israel. And over a million were sent over the Black Sea. Many died on ships, others in refugee camps of diseases and famine as well. Uh, there are about 50, 50 to 60,000 still left in that Caucasus region. But one of the ironic pieces of information to know is the heliopad of Putin's dacha up in the mountains is the exact spot where this occasion surrendered to the Russians. The Was, exact spot. Is it coincidental or is it an in-your-face gesture? Or a little bit no, of I think it's mostly coincidental to tell the truth. They wouldn't do something like that on purpose because they know the backlash of the publicity. Well, but the back the backlash would still be there whether oh, or not yeah. it was intentional. So that's something that's to, to and were the Circassians largely mm-hmm. uh, the remaining the the surviving population? Are they? Uh, where are they located now? Are they outside? Most of them are in Turkey, as you in said. Yes. eastern Turkey. But they do go as far south, as I said, uh, into Syria. I'm not sure how many are still left in Syria, given the situation. But as far south as Israel, not too many of them went into Europe because initially they were Christian and then they converted to Islam. And it is Sunni Islam that they are uh, observed today. Mm-hmm. And there are other 
historic developments around. Uh, we can go, uh, I think you may want to go back further than the Circassian uh, mm-hmm. population, and then I'd like to move us forward to the area um, where in 2008 there was a scrimmage between the Ossetians and the, um, with the Russians and the Georgians That's on the right. other side. But let's go back one step further with mm-hmm. the, uh, that uh, earlier history. Well, the whole history of the Caucasus region is very dramatic. Uh, one has to separate the mountainous region in the north, which stretches, if you have your map in front of you, uh, it stretches all the way over to the Caspian Sea. And on the Caspian Sea coast, you have the infamous now Dagestan, which is the hotbed of terrorists, mafia, you name it. It is almost an uncontrollable situation. And then just to the west of Dagestan, Chechnya, and then moving on across through many different smaller republics in Gushetia, South Ossetia, uh, to the Black Sea and to Sochi. So Sochi is basically just on the edge of a very unstable region. But do also remember there's the South Caucasus, which includes Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Armenia. And Claudia mentioned the 2008 uh, Georgian-Russian uh, war. And there were two breakaway regions, South Ossetia and uh, Abkhazia. And Abkhazia is only a few miles away from the Olympic venues. And between the Olympic venues and Abkhazia is what is known in the security lingo as a forbidden zone. No one can go in there. And it's because of the problems with Abkhazia. So the well, we're, we'll talk about full blown security issues. I just want to talk about the whole location. So you were saying then, despite th- those logistics, there couldn't be even a better location for the Winter Olympics mm-hmm. in Russia. This That's is the right. one for Winter Olympics. <laughs> okay. Yes, I stress that. Uh, there is another region that has the wonderful mountainous area and skiing potential. Uh, it's called the Altai Republic, and it's just north of Kazakhstan where it meets China. Uh, it is being developed slowly. It is one of the four regions where gambling is permitted in Russia. And so casinos are opening there. The infrastructure is developing, but it's far, far less developed than the Sochi region. Mm-hmm. And... As far as the the location goes that you were mentioning, all the traffic is going to be, uh, international traffic will be routed to the Moscow International Airport, Mm -hmm. and then there are the domestic hubs that will bring in uh, air air traffic and the the train traffic, which Mm -hmm. we're just, the breaking news is the visas are no longer required for train traffic. So that's in terms of the location. Where location has a lot to do with security, so we'll be sort of blending in those two topics. Good. So you were uh, also lining up, and it's back to the map, everybody. Uh, there's three clusters of right. Olympic activity. That's Sochi <laughs> itself, which is right on the the Black Sea, and then Adler, and then Rosa Kutor, where I guess that's where the dacha is, or is it it's that's closer? He, uh, Putin likes to ski. He likes to ski. Oh. And so, yes, that's up in the mountains, right. So what are the attributes of those three locations that will serve the Olympics that we should be aware of behind the scenes? 
Well, Sochi is more a place where you would go to uh, enjoy a seaside resort. And actually, there are no Olympic venues in Sochi because they could not find area big enough to handle them. Uh, Adler is a little bit south, and even the Olympic Village is in Adler. Adler has uh, an open sort of little peninsula, rounded peninsula that juts out into the Black Sea, and it turned out to be the prime site. And also they didn't have to tear down as many houses or developments in Adler that they would have had to do in Sochi, so this is why. Uh, Now, there's been a very expensive railroad and road built from Adler up into the mountains. You will hear more about that. But it has 43 uh, bridges Bridges. Mm -hmm. and 12 tunnels, and it cost $8.6 billion. And so people will be talking about the first challenge and then the cost of this very, very expensive railroad. And you've put in perspective that capital outlay when you compare that to the cost of the Siberian uh, infrastructure. Mm -hmm. How would that compare? Well, the Siberian is called the Bakal to Amur line, and it was over far just as difficult, uh, but it was less expensive than this, so, and a, a greater distance as well. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think that the the structure will uh, hold up to its uh, task in, in Sochi, or are you I a little the train, shaky there? I know the train, uh, the railroad line, I think will hold up just fine. There are other things I'm much more worried about. <laughs> okay, is that in the security category we'll talk about later? Or uh, Yes, well, the security category thing to watch, as Claudia mentioned, well, is the travel hu- hubs outside of Sochi. Uh, train hubs, especially in Pietagorsk, uh, Volgograd, which has already been hit, so has passed. Recently, within the last oh, that's month. right, recently. And uh, other train hubs coming south from Moscow will be of concern. Yeah. Okay, we'll unpackage that in greater detail in just a bit. Um, so we have today, for those of you who've just joined us, for the whole hour, it's my pleasure to have Peggy Mardudin, our local Russian expert, uh, here on Ask a Leader. You're tuned to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and on the web in training rooms all around the world on KUCI.org. Well, uh, we've, we're, we're uh, at the cusp of the security issue, actually. We're talking about the, the hubs and all uh, your concerns. Uh, let's open those up because uh, there's, there's a great deal to say about that. Uh, the, the, there's the train stations. Now the visas are no longer thing. We've uh, we've actually we've heard too about the uh, or I read recently that the the tour guide the official tour guide uniforms uh, could be could be purchased could be sold off and mm-hmm. that would be a terrific way for somebody who wants to slip through undetected. So I don't know if that's one of the many things that make this the most vulnerable Olympic site ever. It is one of the many things, but I also, uh, they, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, the terrorists have become very clever about the sites that they hit and how they do it. And uh, I know in Volgograd, they hit that train station uh, outside of the security barrier. 
also, when they hit the major airport in Moscow called Domodedovo, they also hit that one with multiple bombs outside the security area just before you enter. So that's one thing I know the Russian security forces will be watching, but can they do it? We what, just don't know. So have you a, a, a handle on the concentration of the security personnel, or um, is is that difficult to know because of the whole there, – there are so many levels of security. Maybe right. you can unpackage that, the levels. That, and so. Well, there are three levels of security, and I just already mentioned the one, right. the forbidden area. The other two – uh, there's a more – they call it, I think, an iron shield yes. or something I, like that. Iron uh, fence or something. something Steel along fence. That, uh, along that line around Sochi itself. But then also the venues will be heavily guarded. Uh, the last thing they want is to have uh, some kind of episode at one of the venues, especially the cl- opening and closing venues. So we'll have to watch that as well. Uh, it's a large security force that has been brought in, and it's hard to get a number of people involved in that security force and what they look like and where they are. Uh, I have recently mentioned the influx of Cossacks encouraged by Putin, and the Cossacks are a very special group, maybe hard to handle and control. Uh, but also, I think many people have expressed concern about how these security forces will react to a potential threat. Will they overreact? So we'll also have to watch that too. And there are they're located in are there uh, is there a particular region they hail from? The Cossacks, no. Uh, they uh, well, the ones coming in here. Uh, I believe are coming from north of the Tarek River, which is one of the main concentrations through history of Cossacks. But the Cossacks range all the way along the China border and also uh, along through uh, north of the Korea, uh, Crimean border. And this is because historically they also were there to protect the Russian Empire from the Ottoman Empire. So it's a historical Phenomenon, the Cossacks, a very famous, uh, dramatic element to watch in Russian history. Well, it's not, you, you know, those of you who always listen to my show, I didn't <laughs> open with my usual township uh, jingle, and uh, it was a Cossack tune called um, Kal- Kalinka. Kalinka. And, yeah. uh, and uh, Peggy Mardudin, I absolutely recognized that when I was playing it, but I thought it would be important to sort of start laying uh, some of the uh, context and texture for this. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that's certainly interesting for people to watch that. I, we, they won't be wearing their, their brightly colored native costumes, or are they going to be I a, don't in leather know. jackets? Pictures, or is that the, that's pictures key. I've seen of them uh, on site and training, they are in their uh, Cossack costume, which usually involves a sort of uh, caracal lamb hat and black uh, long robes, usually very heavily armed. We'll see. Whether they're allowed to do that or they have to have some kind of special uniform, I don't to know. To blend in. But yeah. So it, it's more, it's mm-hmm. a uh, piety, of affinity, support for the the Russian, the white Russians, not so much a Cossack tribe kind of affiliation, could we? Or a little bit of both. Well, the... Uh, Yes, there were some of them that were affiliated with the white 
Russian. Uh, we're talking back to the revolution time. Uh, and uh, again, they were often the ones that the they were they're almost always the most loyal element to the leader of the country in that case back in the uh pre-revolutionary days to the czar and then with the revolution they remained loyal to the czar and it's only recently that putin has kind of brought them back cuz they are a fierce fearsome fearsome force and um in a way, it's like many other things that Putin is doing. He's returning some elements of his rule to the pre-Czarist, or to the Tsarist period, and it's interesting to watch that. The pre-revolutionary, the Tsar, right? Oh, that that is incredible. Well, so we'll we'll keep yeah. an eye on that. Uh, so you were saying that um, where the immediate kind of security are, and we're talking about these also different levels of security mm-hmm. throughout uh, Russia. So. Uh, immediately we can understand how areas will be secured. But as you talked about vulnerable hubs, uh, that uh, must require some kind of personnel. Yes. Can can the Russian uh, society, government, sustain the uh, level security needed to secure those hubs and other areas that are soft it targets? It will. Uh, Putin will say so, and it will. He just <laughs> has to say it, as you were That's saying. Right. He, he doesn't have to uh, issue a piece of paper. It's just... A, by a, just a suggestion, and it gets well, done. Well, he he has that kind of power at this point over that country. Yes, he it is going to be Putin's games. There's no question about it. Well, <laughs> so um, some the, I don't know if you're going to mention, but I would love to also encourage yes. them to uh, put in Putin's games because up will come a documentary that is made in opposition to the games. Fascinating to watch. Uh, the Russians are trying to block it being shown, but I do believe it. Watch for it as a documentary, but you can also see it online. Uh, I know there's numbers of access to it, so watch. okay, very important because mm-hmm. of the. Uh, it's a most the most highly orchestrated kind of symbolic mm-hmm. Olympic uh, mm-hmm. theme around um, in, in history. We could venture to say, well. Um, while we're talking about uh, security, uh, let's you, let's transition to some extent, and it'll straddle our uh, station break that we'll take. Let's talk about another kind of event. I'm calling it the parade of the oligarchs. Each of them are multi-billionaires, long associated with Vladimir Putin, who are likely in. Uh, large share responsible for underwriting improvements and underwriting security. I'm sure they they have enough power. They can sort of breathlessly uh, utter some kind of uh, encouragement for something. So what role, before we talk about infrastructure, what role would the oligarchs have in underwriting security anywhere around Russia? A huge uh, role. Uh, And one thing, they have their own security, which they will be bringing they have to, uh, but also many of them uh, have mafia connection, and the mafia will provide security. In fact, in a previous game, uh, it was during the Soviet period, they called the mafia leaders together and said to them, you secure this game. And Which game? Deemed, I believe it's the 1980s game. Oh, that game. Okay, mm-hmm. those Olympic games. Yeah. And so, yes, they will. The oligarchs will be secure, and there'll be forces securing that venue that probably you would know or be able to see 
We'll see on that one. Um, the oligarchs are a part of Russian culture. Uh, there's always been an elite class. And in this case, it is as much money as and power, and you almost have to balance the two. Some of what we would call oligarchs uh, own large segments of the Russian economy. Others uh, are employed by the state, so it's hard to find out how much money they actually have. Among those, you might include Vladimir Putin. We don't know how much money he has, but we know he's accumulated quite a bit. Um, others, how, and how can we mm-hmm. how can we tell that? How can you know that? Uh, I do this, or I do this, and of course the media as well are always looking for ways in which Putin shows his wealth. But he is not a person that is ostentatious about it at all. Uh, but he does live in a beautiful uh, home outside of Moscow. He uh, does wear the very, very multi-thousand-dollar watches and things like that. So he enjoys those things. He also said to have a dacha in the north part of the Kosnodar region, which is part of Sochi. He has the dacha at Sochi, up in the mountains. On and on it goes. He also has a number of yachts, etc., and so forth, but no accumulated worth as you would have with other of the oligarchs who, like Putanin, who has huge wealth, about $14 billion, according to Forbes, um, and turns, uh, many, many others. Well, there's the Rotenberg brothers. Yes, of- they are friends from childhood. Of- Vladimir Putin. They grew up together in Leningrad, yeah. And then there uh, is also Yakunin. I don't have the full name, but is there, there maybe Yakunin a- is one of those like Putin who is employed by the state. And so you won't get an official figure for his wealth. He runs the Russian railroad and has for uh, almost since Putin came to power. And this is a huge... Operation, if you realize how large Russia is, uh, extending all the way to the Pacific uh, and uh, then all north to south, north to the Arctic, all the way south to the Black Sea. Uh, Yakunin oversees a huge empire, but so, he, we don't know how wealthy he is. And so there was a great opportunity for him to uh, uh, ex- exert more influence with yeah. the, the recent strip up to the the Rosa Couture facility. Well, his influence, he's had to oversee the project. He was actually being kind of scolded for how much it costs, but oh. he fights back. And uh, publicly uh, in the media, he was quoted as saying, we are the scapegoats for all these projects if they go wrong. And so that's another thing to watch for. If something goes wrong, who's going to be blamed? So we'll watch for Yakunin's name to be mentioned, or yes, or and his also watch station. for him to be there too. Okay, I'm going to be fascinated by how many of the oligarchs come. Then there mm-hmm. is uh, is it Prokhorov who is underwriting the biathlon? Oh, and, and Prokhorov. Yes, uh, Prokhorov. Uh, your listeners may know because he is part owner of what is now the Brooklyn Jets, the basketball team. And one of the conditions for him buying into that team is building the stadium in Brooklyn. Uh, 
but uh, he rarely comes now to the United States to watch his team. He's more interested in the biathlon athletes team, especially in Russia. He's underwritten a lot of their training. They fly by private jets. They stay in the best hotels. It's a very interesting story. And other Olympic biathlon teams don't have that kind of wealth backing them. So it's an important... They're putting a lot of capital, literally and figuratively, uh, behind that biathlon team. So to watch watch, uh, any indications of presentation, preening, and that kind of thing in, exactly. in that event. And so that that's important. And we have, uh, before we take a break, uh, there's Putanin. Putanin? Putanin. <clears throat> and he's the one I mentioned just a little earlier. He oversees the great complex in the Arctic region called uh, Norilsk. And Norilsk is one of the major sources of things such as nickel, and other metals that are shipped out. It, uh, Norilsk was originally built by the Gulag, Gulag prisoners, but during the uh, frantic 1990s, Putanin was the one that went out and got control of that. Uh, but he also is the one that Putin can sort of wring out money from, because Putin sort of oversees the control of these things. And yes, Putanin is very, very involved in supporting financially, and I'll be curious to see if he shows up, How, to what extent each of these oligarchs show up at the Olympic Games. And we'll see, will we see their names, or they'll just, you think they'll be, sh- I mean, our press will be different coverage than uh, Russian press, but they all, they all know the, the oligarchs. Yes, they do, and you'll see them in different ways. You'll often see them sitting near... Uh, Putin? Uh, Vladimir Putin. What I'm curious is how many of them bring yachts to the Sochi Harbor. We'll see. And see if our media is smart enough to spot them. Well, I hope, <laughs> hope that, uh, there's media that's paying attention to analysts like yourself yeah. so that uh, we can pick up more than just uh, uh, shiny medals and uh, uh, some sort of saccharine backstories of athletes. Yes, I said that, folks. Well, I'm going to give us a little bit of a break here, and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll be back. Uh, in just a moment, uh, we're gonna, it's just a little David, uh, it's a Philip Glass's version of Heroes. So we'll be right back. for joining us, everybody. This is Ask a Leader, and my guest is Peggy Maradudin, and she is our go-to expert locally on all things Russian, and she is kind enough to show us what to look for, what to consider as the Sochi Winter Olympic Games proceed, mm-hmm. starting with the opening ceremony on Thursday. As I'm sure labor is toiling uh, uh, non-stop, round-the-clock, 24-7 to get whatever they can finish because there is a great deal that is not yet finished. And I guess some journalists are checking in to hotels that aren't finished or you're That's saying right. for the fish stadium, yes. people, please bring a glass, bring your own water and a flashlight because you're not so <laughs> sure how that's going to work. So we were talking about the mm. visibility of the oligarchs around the Olympic Games. Let's talk about do, what do you expect 
the visibility of President Vladimir Putin to be around the games, besides the opening and the closing ceremonies? Oh, besides. Well, first, let's go back to the opening ceremonies just for a minute, because I'm very curious. Uh, One thing to watch is Putin, as a leader of this large country and a very powerful man, dresses very simply. He is not. He does not dress like the communist leaders or the czarist figures who had elaborate uniforms and or medals. something and medals and things like that. He'll be in a simple suit, white shirt and tie, and that's all. Um, <clears throat> other places he will be. Uh, he's passionate about all sports, uh, so that's going to be hard to judge where you will see him pop up, but I have a feeling he will be almost the entire time in the Sochi area at the venues, uh, showing up unexpectedly. Uh, He loves to ski. Uh, As you know, he loves uh, judo and wrestling, but that won't be part of the sports. But uh, that's his favorite sport. But also, I expect strongly to see him at the ice hockey matches, which is an ongoing issue with Russian sports. They want to be the best ice hockey team. And that has not always worked. If any of you remember the very famous 1984 Miracle on Ice when the American team conquered or defeated the Soviet team at the time. And then uh, the last Winter Olympics in Vancouver, the Canadian team won. So let's watch that one. Wow. (laughs) It's going to be exciting. And the, the <clears throat> aftermath of a, of a Russian defeat, I don't even want to know what could happen to those team members. Uh, so, uh, so you expect, you wouldn't be surprised to see him just keep popping up there. Maybe All with the, the with the snow leopard under his arm someplace. <laughs> That's a favorite of his, along with the polar bear. <laughs> okay. Well, um, <clears throat> let's talk then about the, uh, when we're talking about the oligarchs, we talked about their role in security. Mm-hmm. So, to what extent do they have a role in bankrolling that now notorious tab, the $51 billion, up from what uh, Putin offered was going to be a $12 billion outlay. I want to give a little perspective to that, Um, that $50 billion, and you're going to hear more of this. So much of it is going to Sochi and environs infrastructure. So new airport terminals, new railroads, uh, lines, new railroad terminals, uh, a lot of highways, uh, a power grid upgraded, and that's one of the reasons everyone's concerned and take a flashlight. Uh, they're, they're sure there are going to be occasional blackouts. Water, wow. sewage, building a new port. Uh, so when you look at that $50 billion, how much exactly is going into just Olympic venues is very difficult to assess. They've said it's about uh, 10 to 12 billion. All the rest will be infrastructure. You'll hear more about this as journalists have a chance to watch it. And to the extent the oligarchs, there's it's difficult to have the um, the I don't know soft money or the informal sector uh, accounted for. But what do you estimate might be? their uh, financing for the this 
They're financing, well, is multiple. Um, they uh, often have come in and gotten bank uh, loans, excuse me, from the uh, state bank, share bank. Uh, but the unfortunate aspect of that is the loans are at very high interest with very quick payback. And some of them have not been able to make those uh, timely payments. It's like a shark loan. It is, oh my indeed. Goodness. And it's not very forgiving. No. Uh, and I don't think Putin is very forgiving about it. Uh, he just insists that they put up the money. Wow. Now, there is a lot. It is endemic in the Russian culture to have corruption. This is just part of the way they think. Um, payback, fee, uh, all kinds of payback goes on. There's no uh, bribery. I mean, there is bribery all over the place. Uh, kickbacks is what the word I was trying to think of. And um, contracts are inflated. There's no question about that. And they don't understand why we in the West make such a big deal about it. Okay. There's a difference. Mm-hmm. Well, as, let's talk about the symbolism that mm-hmm. is, it goes all the way back to Prometheus. And mm-hmm. there is a connection geographically mm-hmm. with that Promethean myth mm-hmm. I'd love for you to tell our listeners about. Well, and uh, Putin mentions this in his 2007 speech in Guatemala. But the original myth is that Prometheus gave fire to the human living in that part of the world, or just period, and gave them fire, which is a tremendously strong thing for them to have. And Prometheus was punished for doing this by the Greek gods, especially by Zeus, who had him chained to one of the mountains, and this is going to be in the Caucasus region, one of the Caucasus mountains, and daily a bird will come and... uh, bird of prey will come and eat out his liver and uh, then daily the next morning his liver will be back and then daily has to go through the same torture again there's a wonderful Greek statue showing the uh, bird doing this but there's also a complete statue in Sochi showing him free uh, showing Prometheus free of the chains and as Putin alludes to it's ironic and wonderful that the flame is come from Greece in this Olympics, gone all the way through Russia and back to Sochi, and it's part of international freedom. So very symbolic. It's wonderful. Well, and I guess you might mention symbolically it's been put out uh, innumerable times on the way along <laughs> yes, that route. It uh, yes, it has. It, it has had quite an uh, adventurous time. Uh, it did go to the depths of Lake Baikal. It did go way up to the spaceships. Uh, International Space Mission. It, it, that's right. Uh, it went to the North Pole. Uh, so it's been all over Russia and, of course, had some troubled times. But I think the funniest one was entering the Kremlin when the man who was holding it to his horror saw, saw that it was out. And the next thing that occurred is one of the security guards reached out with a Zippo lighter and relit it. And, of course, the Zippo company couldn't resist that picture, used it in its own commercials until it was shut down by the Kremlin. 
important anecdote. There, others who've covered well, that talked <laughs> about their indignation over not the appropriate flame being used to rekindle that, but uh, this is this is yet another sub subplot for people. That's why Peggy Marduden is on the show. She's my guest today here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming all over the world on the web at KUCI.org. We're giving this whole hour to Peggy Marduden, and you'll be able to hear any part of this show on the podcast afterward uh, at the KUCI.org archives or on my website, askaleader.net. Well, uh, there's other symbolism, too. I don't know. If you, is this time you want to talk about the three mascots that oh, were yeah. offered up to the public to vote on? But mm-hmm. uh, the, the outcome mm-hmm. is uh, well, the not outcome what we thought. was interesting because in the past, there's been sort of a bear-like figure called Misha. That was the main character in the 1980s uh, Olympic Games, which, by the way, the United States boycotted. Uh, but they let the uh, Russian people have a chance to decide, and the voting was so tight, they ended up with three different mascots. Uh, the snow leopard, which ranges mostly through the uh, Tianjin Mountains, which is sort of the eastern part of Tajikistan all the way north, thought at one time to be extinct, and in the... Uh, Reserves around Sochi, which is huge, uh, they have been brought back. There's quite a number of snow leopards that have returned to the region. Uh, the second one is the polar bear, and actually, you can find pictures of Putin uh, up in the polar, up in the Arctic region, uh, looking at how polar bears are registered. They in tranquilized and registered, and he's often pictured petting one of them. The third one is the hare, and uh, that one, I am not sure why that one became part, except that it is a usually very clever animal and very athletic. Um, there are charming cartoons of these three characters, and again, you can access this on the Internet and have fun watching these cartoons. They're in Russian, but with subtitles in English. So... There, it's important that we talk about the the importance, uh, uh, the symbolic kinds of underpinnings of what's being presented at the games. And I, um, I don't know if any one of these three mm-hmm. have an old Russian cultural kind of backdrop, or if there are other old Russian cultural pieces that we ought to talk about as we're um, well at the time. That is why I think the hare was chosen because the polar bear and the snow leopard do not in the Russian culture the slow snow. Snow leopard is very important in uh, some of the Central Asian cultures, especially in Kazakhstan. It's one of the symbols in Kazakhstan of its power and its legendary uh, presence in that area. But, Claudia, you ask about other symbols, and this is something I particularly am going to be wanting to watch for, especially in the opening ceremonies is those touches of imperial Russia that Putin wants to have you see. Uh, It is going to be there. He has transformed, uh, particularly the Kremlin, you'll see the uh, the white walls, the red carpets, the gold everywhere, the return of the symbol of uh, the two-headed eagle, uh, there are little touches of the Tsar's period coming back, and I want to see where they are. 
in the final ceremonies in Vancouver, uh, you saw the ballet, the Ber- Marinsky, Kirov, um, the Bolshoi as well. Uh, you saw Valery Gergiev uh, conducting one of the symphony orchestras. So this is going to be the interesting to see the extent of which the great old cultural values uh, are going to be brought to the fore. And this is something that Putin wants. So what, in your estimation, is the most powerful message Putin will want to drive through with this symbolic whole array, um, is it an international? Is it a domestic message? Because, as you pointed out, that uh, his own authority becomes a bit wobbly when he's trying to plug all the holes in his dike with uh, domestic issues and the the republic surrounding Russia uh, fomenting. So, um, do you see the the essential aspect of presenting his superior uh, symbolic? profile, uh, is it a domestic or is it an international I think first and foremost it's domestic, strangely enough. And one of the things, he's playing to the Russian audience and right now they are supporting him. No question. The terrorists are coming from uh, the region in the North Caucasus. Uh, They're they're, uh, in opposition to what Russia represents. The rest of Russia is with him, Uh, strangely enough, especially for this Olympics. They do not want to have Russia embarrassed. One of the interesting other things that those of you that know something of Russian history, watch the extent to which Putin is modeling Peter the Great. And I've seen numbers of good commentary on this. Peter the Great built St. Petersburg and transformed it into a window in the West. Putin is going to try to do this for Sochi. Wow. He's going to be another Peter the Great. And remember, he grew up in what was then Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. He has seen those beautiful palaces and the great challenge of transforming that area into a magnificent city. So we'll just see if Putin can make it. I hope he can. Actually, I do. Uh, Yes, there is an international message. Uh, Russians always like to be treated as equals to Western powers or better than Western powers. So we'll watch that, too. There there is an uh, an uh, upping of the um, exceptionalism that uh, Mm -hmm. Russians are demonstrating Mm -hmm. and what what, um, outside of Russia uh, media is calling a facade. So it's it's all... Um, it's all the way you're looking at it. Uh, Claudia is using that word exceptionalism, which is one thing that Putin in his editorial uh, 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 letter in the New York Times used to criticize uh, Barack Obama for using that phrase to talk about the Americans. And uh, he says, you're not the only exceptional people in a sense, and be careful how you use that phrase. So uh, there's a lot of competition between these two countries, including not just (laughs) ice hockey, which I will watch carefully, but accumulation of metals, all kinds of... uh, It it actually is... uh, Russia actually uses America as its standard against which to compete. And we're going to watch that in the games. 
as we're watching, you mm-hmm. have offered a list of uh, many websites, and I would like for you to offer our listeners a chance mm-hmm. to become familiar with them, uh, a definitive list if we can do it in our time remaining so that everyone can uh, follow along uh, with the games and uh, get even more information. So did you want to start with the, the Moscow Times? Is that one of the better uh, ones? Yes, it is, actually. They do quite a good job. Uh, strangely enough, another one is uh, Russia Behind the Headlines. Uh, they are very much a government-run thing, but they have been given freedom to do fairly broad reporting Uh, One of the things that I know I have to be careful of, and I want to uh, urge you to explore other areas besides NBC. NBC is going to do the major coverage, but like so often has happened in the past, they will cover the American athletes, and they won't do the broader picture. And so do look for other ways, and I think the Internet might be the best way to do it. Um, Let's just mention the uh, Russian Beyond mm -hmm. the Headlines. It's rbtu.ru on the the web. And some other ones you were going to mention, Peggy. Uh, (laughs) I'm trying to think what other good ones I will go on to. Um, uh, Try some of the other Russian newspapers, actually. Which can all be translated. Don't be deterred, folks. Not at all. And some of them, like the Moscow News and Komserat, come in English anyway. You can have an English version. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, one of the other things that I would like to urge you to look at on the Internet is something called the Caucasus Knot. And this is uh, done out of Dagestan. It is a very unusual site, but it covers the problems of the North Caucasus in a very open and honest way. And not spelled like the knot you tie. Uh Uh-uh. Oh, it's Uh -uh. not? Oh, I'm sorry. Well, you can actually write in a Google line, for example, Caucasian knot, K-N-O-T. Okay. (laughs) I forgot to mention that. Um, But also watch other... um, media sources, and I usually use things such as uh, the German source. I use Der Spiegel, and I do go to The Guardian in uh, the United Kingdom. I also use the BBC, which does an excellent job of international reporting. Um, There are others as well. And uh, so just explore, have fun, but don't just rely on NBC uh, there'll be American newspapers that will cover it fairly well. The New York Times does a good job. Washington Post, uh, Christian Science Monitor. And I'm, I'm intrigued the extent to which the Orange County Register and the L.A. Times are covering the Sochi Olympics. So there's a lot to do. Have fun with it. Absolutely. So that, this is why you, you can tell, folks, I've been having Peggy Mardudin come to us uh, today to get, mm-hmm. help us get a much more... A fuller impression of what all is going on uh, in the Sochi Olympic Games. And um, so we've talked about the symbolism. I, I don't know if there were any additional symbols as we close, uh, that uh, the offerings uh, in terms of uh, side attractions that are at the Games. Are you privy to any of that? 
No, I've been so concentrated on getting those venues up, and are they safe, getting the security uh, in place? Um, I I do think it'll be interesting to see another aspect. Uh, What they've been holding off on, and watch for this too, is the future of Sochi and that whole area. Uh, They're trying to make it into another Côte d'Azur. Uh, where the wealthy will go instead of going to France or going to Switzerland to ski. Or Dubai, you were saying. (laughs) Or Dubai is another one. And in the Dubai situation, they are building a huge artificial island off the coast of Sochi uh, with very luxurious homes and hotels. But they put a lid on advertising for this until after the Sochi Games Uh, I'll be curious to see the future of this whole area. Well, Peggy Marduden, I really want to appreciate you for, uh, thank you, I appreciate so much your being on the show today. Uh, You can, for those of you who are qualified and eligible for enrollment in the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, you can look up the OLLI on the web and find out when you can get in touch. Your next lectures with that UCI extension uh, program mm-hmm. are coming up at the end of this month. Yes, I, the games end on the 23rd of February and my next class will be on the 24th. So you will have so much to say as you're watching Moment on. You won't even give your chance to, sell, to sleep, I imagine, so <laughs> that you can give that ever insightful, uh, inestimably mm-hmm. thorough uh, kind of a lecture. So that's for those of you who are eligible. I think you have to be well, a certain... No, actually, if any of the students at UCI want to come... Uh, have them get in touch with me or the Ollie office. Tell them they've heard this broadcast and would like to sit in. We'd love to do that. We're beginning to do that for UCI. We're invited to sit in now on the Humanities Core Courses classes. They love to have oh, the intergenerational good. setting. Oh, everybody benefits from that. So that's every, so eligibility. Let's open that up. It's then, open for everybody. Much to know more that because mm-hmm. if you like what you're hearing today, you're going to hear so much more. Mm-hmm. And and Peggy's she's got the stamina to go at a two hour lecture. So there's uh, so much to learn. And she makes sure you're you're culturally, geographically, politically, historically literate. And so that there isn't anything better from in my frame of reference. So that's where you all can follow her. Yeah. So uh, before I close the show, I'm, mm-hmm. and I, as I thank Peggy Mardoon for coming, I want to thank everybody for listening. 